and then it starts raining tomorrow. So, oh, wow. It is beautiful in Seattle. I'm going to try to spend time outside today. It is, it, it is a uh, stunning here. Nice. Right now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's actually cool outside instead of the surface of the sun. Oh, so oh, wonderful. I remember my 10 years in Texas that October, I lived for October. <laughs> Instead yeah. of putting my sweater on inside because of air conditioning, I put my sweater on outside. It's like, yay. Yeah, I'm actually in long sleeves for the first time. Oh, yes. In months. Because <laughs> it's not 90, so you put long sleeves on. <laughs> the rest of the country probably thinks we're nuts, but we live for this, right? Yeah. <laughs> So good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. It's our new season. We're getting back started again, and we get to start our season with Dr. Jan Hasbrook. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is going to be such a great and necessary conversation. So happy to be here, Ashley. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. Um, We are going to talk about fluency and like you and I were talking about before we got started, fluency is so, so misunderstood by absolutely everybody that Mm -hmm. I think it might be important to sort of start with trying to explain what is fluency, especially in, you know, you've got rate, you've got accuracy, you've got fluency and you've got comprehension, but what is fluency and how does it fit into that? Yeah. Well, um, you're, you are right that fluency is very misunderstood, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It seems like one of the most simple things of this complex reading process. Um, we can wrap our head around fluency more easily than phoneme awareness or, or phonics or certainly comprehension, because it's just getting kids to read text quickly. Um, but that's not, <laughs> that's not correct. And I think we, we were misguided in so many ways um, by, by little things. Um, one was the, uh, the, that wonderful uh, report of the National Reading Panel that for many of us 20 years ago, when it, 21 years ago, when it was published, uh, brought uh, our attention to fluency and, and the other four components that they shared the research. But in that report, they did such a, uh, I mean, it was a very valuable contribution to draw our attention to fluency as one of the components of, of skillful reading. But when you go back and look at the definition uh, in the National Reading Panel, they said fluency was the ability to read quickly. Um, that was their first, their first piece of definition to read quickly with accuracy and good expression. Um, And that uh, uh, is, you know, sort of starts us off on the wrong foot because it puts the emphasis on certainly one component of fluency. Rate Mm -hmm. is an aspect of fluency, but it shouldn't be talked about first. And it's not about reading quickly. That is not the answer. And I, I do know um, our, our, all of us who are in the research science world, we are all learning ourselves and our thinking evolves. And I am certain that if that chapter were written today, um, they would not write it that way and they would not use the word quickly. So we think of fluency also, when most people say fluency, they're thinking about passage 
fluency, um, which is really important. That's that's the goal is to get all our kids to that point. If if uh, people are listening uh, are familiar with Scarborough's Rope, which mm -hmm. it's hard to have a conversation about reading these days without talking about Scarborough's Rope. That wonderful infographic where she sort of deconstructs the simple view of reading those two major components of language and decoding and um, then separates them into these important strands and then shows how over time uh, if reading is developing correctly those those um, those individual strands get woven together but at the end of the far right uh, side of the uh, reading rope is that tightly woven rope. So all the strands are now tightly woven again. That's a representation of fluency. It's one of the best representations, all these component pieces. But what that really represents is text fluency. Um, that's what it kind of looks like when a, a reader is able to uh, take all those component pieces and orchestrate them simultaneously and effortlessly to read text, read and understand text, which is why fluency is important. But so most of the time when we're talking about fluency, we're talking about the end of the rope text or passage fluency. But you can go back to um, the left side of the rope, uh, those component pieces. And Marianne Wolf and others uh, have written about the importance of understanding that those each of those component pieces needs to first be acquired. And that's really where we think about pure accuracy. You need to know your letter names. You need to know your letter sounds. And after you've acquired that level of accuracy knowledge, then with practice, it can, that knowledge becomes automatic to your brain. It doesn't require any thinking at all. So then we also have to do the same kind of thing with, um, uh, with words. We take those letters and sounds that we've learned and learn to decode words. Um, and with practice, that, that decoding of words becomes more fluent. So we have fluency developing at the sound and letter level, the word level, the phrase level, and that is all foundational to the end goal of text reading fluency. And we can use essentially the same components. The National Reading Panel is absolutely right. Those three components are the essence of text reading fluency. But um, uh, I would put, I always put accuracy first because that is the foundation of fluency. Fast reading is not the goal. You have to be accurate um, and you can't lose accuracy and you can't sacrifice accuracy because the whole point of fluency is comprehension. So accuracy is first, foremost, and forever the most important component. Then we do need rate, but not quickly. The uh, National Reading Panel using that word was problematic. We want appropriate rate. Um, sometimes, not always, kind of rarely, but sometimes it's really appropriate to read quite slowly. We're reading something that's uh, really important, uh, it's new or novel to us, or it's just really complex, or it's something like poetry. Who would want to read poetry quickly? It, you slow down and you reread it and you ponder it and you get an emotional reaction. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's appropriate rate. And sometimes reading really 
really is appropriate. We're skimming and scanning. I'm trying to remember where I found something before. Um, I, I'm just reading for absolute pleasure. Um, doesn't matter if I really understand it or not. But you, we have some ideas of appropriate rate um, right. that is appropriate for understanding. And then expression um, is, is contributes to comprehension and it is reflective of comprehension. That's a whole, a whole topic in itself. But I also go on when I talk about um, defining fluency to say that it also, part of the definition should be its connection to comprehension. So um, the definition that I use is uh, uh, reasonable accuracy at an appropriate rate with suitable expression that leads to, it doesn't guarantee, but it leads to uh, accurate and deep comprehension. And then I throw in motivation too, as part of the definition, because, uh, and this comes less from research um, and more from my, oh, getting close to 50 years of clinical practice with struggling readers is in all those decades, I have yet to find uh, a student who flu struggles with fluency, who's also a highly motivated reader. So fluency has something to do with motivation. We haven't studied it to be really systematic about it, but it's obvious. So um, that's a, what was that? 15 minute definition of reading fluency, but that's my best effort at it. It is complex. And it's one of the reasons people misunderstand it. Well, and I, I had never thought, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an educator. I'm, I'm not a clinical researcher. I'm not doing anything that you do, but I had never thought about fluency from the aspect of each of the individual strands within mm -hmm. the rope and needing to have fluency. I've never been able to explain fluency very well to anybody, but mm. at least in advocating for my own child, I was able to push back on certain things saying, that's, you're not talking about fluency, you're talking about something else. You know, I, I knew enough when I was faced with something that didn't make sense, that I knew wasn't going to the definition, but I never thought about it from the individual aspects of each component in and of itself. We, we rarely do. We use the word fluency in reading as uh, almost always what people are meaning is text fluency. Right. Uh, and I really do appreciate and want to give credit to Marianne Wolf um, uh, and of course others, there, but she has written very eloquently about all of this and always says, um, remember fluency happens at the sub-skill level first, or that end goal isn't going to happen. You can't get to text fluency without sub-skill fluency. And I, I, I'm thinking about one particular event that happened where, you know, the argument was the child was comprehending very well mm. and did not care that the fluency was struggling mm -hmm. so vastly. And, you know, the argument pushed back was it doesn't matter that the child is comprehending at this level that you claim the child is comprehending at. The child is having to work so hard to comprehend at that level exactly and their frustration and anxiety is significant because this piece is lacking and you're not understanding the connection between the two yeah. that that 
probably should be part of my definition. It is on Scarborough's rope where she's labeling that tightly woven rope as being right. skillful and effortless. Um, and because that's, that's the point. That's why we care about fluency. The only reason we really care about fluency are those two things of comprehension and motivation. Um, it's necessary for those. Fluency by itself, who cares? Um, it, it's because it's essential. <laughs> Uh, for motivated uh, and comp motivated reading and and comprehension, it's the and it's that effortlessness. We mm -hmm. take accuracy and practice it at the subskill word and text level. We practice it to the point where it becomes automatic. Um, our brain doesn't have to think about it at all. In fact, once word recognition is so automatic, we can't suppress it. Uh, we have, we, our brain will recognize a word before we can, we can uh, think about it. So that then frees up uh, cognition for paying attention to the words of the poem or the directions for reading, um, you know, the directions for administering uh, uh, prescription medicine or whatever we're trying to read, uh, mm -hmm. doing it uh, accurately and, and effortlessly is really the key. And I'm the, I, so like, I'm, I'm personally not dyslexic and I'm a very fluent reader. And I think about the times that, um, like I was reading your book and my husband was blasting the football game and I read the same paragraph seven times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I don't know a single word that I just read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We and need attention. Got, there is attention yeah. issues there too. Yeah. And I went and got my Bose canceling headphones so that I can actually read your book. But um, then I think about like, I was reading through Language at the Speed of Sight by Dr. Seidenberg. And I was, I believe I was specifically in the chapter for uh, dyslexia. And I came to a screeching halt because he used a word that I hadn't heard before. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, I, I was going along at, the, at a nice clip through the text, right? And all of a sudden, and the first time I read it, I read it differently. So it was inculcate was mm. the word. And I read indoctrinate. Mm. But within a couple mm. of words, I knew that indoctrinate was wrong. And I went back and it was, it was like a whole spiral. I, Siri couldn't even tell me what the word meant, but... <laughs> Um, it, that's, I, I agree with you. People don't understand. I mean, obviously people don't understand the fluency aspect of that. And it's such a hard thing, I think, to sort of tease out and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to get out. <laughs> well, I, it, it is an essential piece. And when we're talking about our children with dyslexia, it's something we do need to be paying attention to because we, we often spend with those children, our children with dyslexia. I'm a parent of a child with dyslexia myself. Um, we, we know that their struggles are often just at even getting launched with reading. They're at that letter sound awareness connection decoding and then uh, all of those contributing or not contributing to orthographic mapping and creating those sight words. And, um, and then they start to read connected text and challenges with fluency kick in. So we they need lots of 
props and support and scaffolding and encouragement at every step of the journey. And with superb instruction as early as possible, that's certainly one of the big messages uh, in my uh, Conquering Dyslexia book uh, is the compelling research that says uh, it's, it says first, it's never too late. We, we can work and rewire the brain, but it's just going to be harder. And then we've lost um, years of, of practice and we know practice is essential. Uh, so we wanna start as early as possible with age appropriate instruction. Uh, and that makes, that makes a big difference. And it can, um, I mean, I know, Sally Shaywitz for years has been using the term overcoming dyslexia. Uh, more recently, Jack Fletcher and Nadine Gab are both talking about um, from their research that they, they use the term preventing dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And of course, we can't prevent dyslexia. You're born with dyslexia. Dyslexia is neurobiological. So we don't cure it in the way that a brain surgeon could get in there and cure things. But what they're saying is with that early identification and early intervention, we can prevent, not dyslexia, but we can prevent um, those outcomes of struggle with reading, writing, and spelling. Um, mm -hmm. But for a lot of our students with dyslexia, even if they get all of that, that early identification, superb intervention, they learn to read, write, and spell quite well, Fluency for a lot of our children with dyslexia remains something that is um, hard to achieve at a highly proficient level. They can, they can, they should. We have to help them get to a level of uh, adequate fluency, but it, that may be at least what we know these days with instruction. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing we're always working on and studying and trying to figure out the best way to do it. But the the instructional methodologies that we have right now, we we that remains for for some of our children with dyslexia the hardest thing to achieve at a proficient level. Right. So this question just kind of randomly popped into my head. We know that there's a lot of data behind how comprehension fuels written expression. Mm -hmm. We know obviously that fluency has to deal with, you know, fuels comprehension as well. How much of a factor does fluency play in one's ability to generate written expression? Or am I just completely down the wrong path? Well, no, they're highly related. Um, uh, and certainly I was in a study group yesterday uh, Friday mornings, there's a group of us from all over the country who get together via Zoom now. It's so wonderful. And uh, most of the group are researchers like myself. And we're talking about these kinds of things. And yesterday, uh, the topic came up that we haven't done um, in the translating practice, research into practice, we haven't done uh, as good a job as we need to is making sure that practitioners uh, are connecting reading and writing and spelling as, as part of the other side of the coin, if you will, um, that how our brains are wired, those, those uh, processes 
in our brain. We, we respond to them differently out, outside of the brain. You know, writing is with our hand um, or our fingers and typing and sp spelling doesn't necessarily look like it's related to reading, especially the way we teach it. But um, all those concepts of learning the sub-skills and then learning them to a level, starting with accuracy, because you have to start with accuracy. How do you use your hand and a pencil and a pen um, to form a letter? How do you do that? And then how do you do it well to the point of fluency? Take that nice accuracy you've learned, build fluency, then start to write words and then start you know, all of that. Uh, and that we do know that becoming a fluent writer in just the mechanical skills of writing is hugely important. And that is a barrier for a whole lot of our kids who get to third and fourth grade and um, hate writing. I hear that all the time uh, from schools. You know, our big problem is our fourth graders hate to write. And almost always, um, I mean, I, I know what the main problem <laughs> is, uh, but they don't see it as the fact that the kids weren't taught to write in a way that is allows writing to be effortless and fluent. Um, so there's fluency and then there's, you know, and then reading fluency. It's so all tied together. It's really we're, we we break these things up so we can have conversations about them. But in terms of understanding the mechanics, what's going on in the brain um, and how we should be teaching them. We should be teaching from the very beginning um, uh, kids with whiteboards in front of them or paper and pencil. And we're learning the letter M represents the sound M. Now pick up your pen and write it. Um, if you're dysgraphic, I'll have you trace it uh, because I don't want you to practice it wrong. I don't want you to fail at this, but the mechanics of forming that as you're saying the sound and seeing the visual connection um, and connecting that as quickly as we can with meaning, words that have that mm sound that activate the part of your brain that has meaning representation. We should be doing all of that all the time. Um, one thing I really wanted to talk about was, and you, you and I were talking about this before we went live, was Jack Fletcher's studies about, ac uh, sorry, I almost said accuracy, fluency <laughs> being developed primarily between kindergarten and second grade. And considering how late many of our children are identified, how, why only between kindergarten and second grade? You know, I know the first time that that was said to me, I, I, I didn't understand. I yeah. had papers sent to me that I read, but I was like, I don't, I don't understand why that's a limited window. It, it, it's not really. What, what the implications of that are is the practice effect. This, this thing, this magical, amazing, complicated thing called reading that we're asking our brains to do um, requires lots and lots and lots of practice. And so we wanna get all the basics out of the way, those achieving fluency of the sub-skills. We wanna get that all out of the way so that by late first grade, early second grade, kids are really reading text. They're not doing it very well, um, most kids, but they 
they're not having to think really hard about every single word. They've got, their brains have been trained to the point of uh, pretty skillful for most kids, neuro, neurotypical kids who have received good instruction by first grade, early second. They've, their brains have figured out what reading is. It's looking at each word, um, paying attention to the sequence of letters. Um, some of those, those words are now being orthographically mapped into their, into their brains. They're, they've, uh, they've learned that this, is, has, this process is meaningful. Um, I'm reading the dog is big. I should be um, visualizing or thinking about some kind of animal that I know to be a dog. It's kind of big. I have no, no, nothing else yet. I don't know the color. I don't know the size. I don't know the breed. I don't know what big is, but they're activating meaning. So that's all in place. And that's what Jack is talking about. That needs to be in place by early, by late first, early second, so that then they have years and years and years of practice. Um, and what we continue to learn, the instruction is bigger words, um, being able to decode um, uh, multisyllable words, decode and write, decode and encode multisyllable words, uh, vocabulary, what all these big bigger words mean, longer sentences, complex text. But um, if we miss that window, if in second grade and third grade and fourth grade, thinking about my own daughter, still trying to figure out what this reading thing is, that's years of missed practice. And that's just really hard to make up. Um, maybe impossible. That's the part we really don't know. There, there are some studies where kids are pulled out of, I mean, it's not done in a regular school setting, but given two hours a day of intensive remedial intervention can, even at older ages, can rewire the brain um, to a point where they can be proficient at the word identification level. But even with those kids, if, it, if, they're late, if they're older, getting them to a level of proficient fluency, we, um, uh, it, it is extremely rare um, to do that. So it's, it's missed practice opportunity. It's not that those skills can't be, that you can't become fluent. It's that it's going to be that much harder. Understood, um, which, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it, it's another reason why early identification um, is is the mantra from those of us who care about dyslexia, and we don't want that ever to be discouraging um, to the parents of third graders and fourth graders, um, or uh, or adolescents or adults who are just figuring out what's going on with them because it truly is, as, as um, Sally Shaywood says, it's, it is truly never too late, but it's phenomenally different. Um, it's, it's, it's completely different if we can start at um, four, five and six years old. Well, I know even after my son had just over two years of intervention, before he will tell you he could read. Yeah. You know, like we discovered it near the end of first grade, but he, you know, if you ask him directly, he's going to tell you, I was not a reader until fourth grade. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, 
The only thing that he watches is Japanese anime, uh-huh. subtitled yep. in English, and that's all that he watches. And he understands all of it, tells me all about it. And I have no idea how fast those subtitles are going by. So yeah. that's how I tell myself he's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I mean, any, any activity related to reading words uh, if we can get our kids involved in that it's all it's all good it's all good um what i don't know um i i do like to ask this question of various people but you know like you said most people don't get to start off with the early identification right what you know and, and a lot of what we try to support of course are families that you know you they can't afford tutors. They can't afford advocates. They're trying to, you know, figure a lot of this out on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of advice would you give to families who are just starting off with with children that are that are struggling, that they believe are dyslexic? The schools, the public schools, are doing their identification process, and mm-hmm. um, you know, they're they're just they're they're trying to figure that out. They're trying to get that road started. How would what kind of advice would you give to those families or how would you tell them to begin? And I don't mean to put you on the spot with my questions. I just know yeah, that's fine. This is one I, I like mean, to ask people. <laughs> I've got opinions about just about everything. I'm happy to share my opinions. I can hear my kids laughing right now. Um, the first thing I would say is uh, is find your tribe, find other parents. I mean, it's the work you're doing, Ashley, and your organization, uh, the ever-growing group Decoding Dyslexia, which was founded by parents and serves as parent advocacy. Um, There's some of the best research I've read about dyslexia acknowledges the, the social, emotional, Uh, mental health issues of dyslexia and points out that it is a, it affects the family. It is not, it's different than some things that this, the kid has to deal with it and the parent takes him to the doctor or whatever. Dyslexia, the impact of dyslexia is so profound um, that it does affect the whole family. So understanding what other families are going through um, and sharing the grief and the frustration and the anger and the shame and the all those feelings, um, it's, it's nice to have a community uh, of other people who are going through that and hearing their stories about their their smart little kid who was eager to learn to read and everything looked just great until they got to kindergarten or sometimes preschool. Um, And suddenly they're looking around and these kids are doing things they can't do and they don't understand why they're failing for the first time and they're very precocious, smart little lives. Um, And what that does to their self-esteem and their ego and their pride and their joy um, all, all of that. I, I think it's very important to connect with other parents because parents have figured out a whole lot of stuff. They figured out if you're in a, in a community, they figured out who, if you can't afford tutoring, they know who the good tutors are. You, you don't have to just go on the internet and start to search for somebody because there's anybody that can call themselves an interventionist or a tutor. So parent advice, um, uh, if there are some states 
where you need a medical diagnosis uh, to have your child uh, access services for dyslexia. And uh, who are those pediatricians who know how to do it? There's a whole lot of pediatricians who would say, dyslexia? I don't know anything about dyslexia. That, that's a, that's talk to your school. And the school yeah. says, oh no, you have to talk to the, the physician. So parents will have done that work, figured out who the, who the pediatricians are, who understand their role in dyslexia um, and connect parents with those resources. Another, and, and, and soon, um, uh, once you make those connections, you'll probably be connected to, parents will be connected to the International Dyslexia Association, mm -hmm. which is a group that's been around for many, many, many decades um, mm -hmm. and really, these days has two purposes, two missions. And one is to connect the research and get that into the hands of practitioners, but they also serve families, um, um, individuals with dyslexia and families who are dealing with dyslexia. So there's tons of good support and resources and ideas and uh, book suggestions and they have an annual conference, which is the mm -hmm. most, um, and it looks like it's going to be online again this year. And, yep. you know, we don't know the future of all conferences, but it may be that forevermore professional conferences have maybe a dual route that some of it's online and some of it is um, uh, in person. Uh, but that is a conference of all the professional conferences that I attend. That's the one that has clearly has strands for parents. They don't just pay lip service to, yeah, if you're a parent, you can come to our conference. They, they make it um, warm and welcoming and valuable for parents to attend. Maybe not some of them. I go to IDA to attend, you know, sessions by top level researchers that like you reading Seidenberg, I'm sitting there going, are they, are they speaking English? Cause this, uh, I need to read more and study more, but, um, yeah, that's, that's what I would, that's the advice I would give to parents. Cause I, it's a lonely journey. It just feels like, uh, it's, it's not as hard as it was way back in my day where pre-internet and uh, we just, it was so much harder to figure out what was going on and how to connect with people, but it's available and it, it's so helpful. That's, that's one aspect of COVID that I have loved because I felt like it was such a boon for our community as a whole that yes. all of the conferences went virtual. Yeah. And a lot of the conferences were free too, mm -hmm. like that big one that MTSS put on uh, Dr. Tim Odegaard, that was shortly after the pandemic began that ran, I think that was all day long or was it two, two straight days? But anyway, I mean, that, that was like, all of my friends were like texting me going, have you logged into this thing yet? And I'm like, I'm logging in and then I'm having to go to a soccer game. So I have to log out. <laughs> Stepping Take in your phone with you as you're. <laughs> I'm like sitting here going, goal, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There are some silver linings to the pandemic. Absolutely. And, and I mean, but the connection information, are, yes, mm -hmm. finally getting, instead of having to spend so much money to go to a conference and oh, yeah, stay in a hotel. Money, and, effort, yeah. Yeah. Hotel rooms and taxis and. 
Yeah, all all of that. Definitely <laughs> easier to stay at home. So 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 much. Um, and I had a friend who went to Portland, and she. You're. I, I love that you described it that way because she, you know, she just called me and she said, "I'm here." And I went, "Wait a minute! I didn't know you were going." Oh. <laughs> she didn't know anybody there, and I, oh. you know, called somebody that I knew was there, and I said, "Hey, can you meet her for coffee? Can you, you know, she's." new to our world and she's just thrown herself out there and flown out there all by herself and wow. you know she met a ton of people that day and she yep. attended a bunch of different lectures and she came home and she said it was amazing <laughs> I really admired her bravery for just throwing herself out there and That's doing right. that I couldn't have done that by myself yeah. <laughs> and not knowing anybody too um but I do hope to be able to actually attend one in person. It'd be nice to actually meet everybody that I've been interviewing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, those, those times will come because there's, there are definitely, that's something that I talk with my colleagues about that. This is, this is wonderful. These zoom contacts are wonderful. And uh, I did a webinar this week and there were people from, Thailand and Qatar and New Zealand and mm -hmm. that wouldn't that just wouldn't happen but those in-person conferences where you do see a colleague down the hall or you can attend those sessions that's uh, somebody else is presenting um, that has great value so I'm I'm sure they will come back when it's um, safe for us to do that yeah I, I do definitely look forward to that day um are there, is there anything that I haven't touched on that I would be remiss in not asking you on the subject of fluency? Well, we should probably talk about fluency assessments. Perfect. That hasn't come up. No. And it always does when I'm talking about fluency. Perfect. Um, so most schools now um, are using uh, some version of those timed assessments um, at the early grade. So usually they're one minute assessments um, and uh, they're used for a variety of different purposes. At the early grades, kindergarten and early first grade, they're often timed one minute assessments of uh, what's letter naming fluency, they're called. How, how many letters can you identify in one minute? Or letter sound fluency, or non-word or nonsense word fluency. How many made up words can you accurately decode um, in one minute? And then by mid first grade, um, most schools these days are using some version of a text reading fluency um, assessment called oral reading fluency and students read an unpracticed uh, grade level passage. So all first graders get a first grade passage, all second graders get a second grade passage and they read them aloud for one minute. And then that, that is scored for words, words correct per minute. And all of those assessments come from um, a research base that's now close to 40 years old, four zero years old, um, called curriculum-based measurement. Um, and so sometimes when you see that oral reading fluency, they'll use the letters ORF and refer to that as an ORF assessment. And all of those assessments, letter name, 
fluency, letter sound fluency, nonsense word fluency, oral reading fluency. Those are all CBM measures. So you'll hear sometimes teachers talk about, yeah, we're, we're using CBM measures. The research base on those measures is very, very strong. I am an advocate and a proponent of using those assessments correct when we use them correctly, uh, because they are tools that have the two things we really need from assessments. We need uh, very technical talk here, but we need reliability and we need validity. Reliability means the test has been shown to give us consistent results. We can trust the results. And mm -hmm. why do a test if you can't trust the results? Um, and validity gives a, at the end of the assessment um, is gives us something useful, actionable. We can do something. It, he it helps us do our work better. So all those CBM measures do that because um, and the fact that they're very quick. So what I think about when I'm talking to teachers about it or parents about why we why those are good assessments to do is that we think of those as practitioners, we should think about those as uh, the equivalent of a thermometer uh, that physicians use. A thermometer very quickly gives you information that is important, um, it has reliability, it's real consistent, we can trust it, and that information is important um, because whether or not you have a fever is very valuable information to a physician or to a mom, um, you know, I don't know if I want to go to school today. <laughs> like, um, yeah, well, if you have a fever, I have 102, you're not going to school today, but your fever is normal. Um, you just, I don't think maybe you don't want to go to school. It, uh, and, and we can get both for a thermometer and those CBM assessments, we get, we get the answer really quickly, but it's one piece of information. So mm -hmm. that's a, a, a mistake that I see some people practitioners, administrators, reading specialists, that that's the only assessment they need to give. No, it's a thermometer. Would, would we, any of us go to a physician whose only assessment tool was a thermometer? Um, no, uh, but we probably also wouldn't trust a, a physician that never took our temperature, you know, but it's one piece of information. Another problem with that, and what it basically says is because all those assessments, the letter naming, the nonsense word, the oral reading fluency, all of those have been normed. So we know what we're looking for. We have decades now of research to say, if you assess, if you kindergartner are at this level in naming letters or sounds, you're, you're on, you're probably, you're on track um, and you're probably going to be doing fine. And we don't need, we'll just keep doing what we're doing because it's working for you. The same with oral reading fluency. Those are, those have all been normed. Um, and we, so in 60 seconds, we can get a score, 42 words correct per minute, 107 words correct per minute. And we can take that and compare it to a norm and say, okay, you, you are way below where you should be. It doesn't tell us why, just like a thermometer doesn't tell us what's why you have a fever. It right. simply says, okay, um, you, you have an, a fever academically, and now we need to figure out what's going on. But the, one of the problematic things with those assessments that I use all the time, I advocate for them all the time. One problem is that they're overused um, or they're used to, um, more broadly, like diagnostically, we, we, we can't do that. We simply say you have a fever or you don't have a fever. 
But the other thing is that that words correct per minute assessment, once kids are reading a passage for a minute, that assessment was labeled or named oral reading fluency. And it shouldn't have been. It's not a measure of fluency as we talked about almost an hour ago now where I gave this long <laughs> definition of fluency. Fluency is complex. It's multifaceted. It develops in progressions over time. It, it, it's, it's not something that you can measure in one minute. So that test is valuable and important. I use it, but I don't want it to be thought of as an assessment of fluency. It's, it's, um, it's, an, it's a thermometer reading about whether you're on track or not. Uh, it does look at accuracy, words correct per minute. So there's a rate element in there. Um, and that's important to know because it's not just can you do it, but can you do it a level, at a level of automaticity? That's what we want to know. Um, and if you can, great, let's keep challenging you. And if you can't, let's figure out why. That we need, we need to then do just like a physician would do. Okay, you have 103 fever. Uh, what is that? Is it COVID? Is it the flu? Is it a ruptured appendix? Um, those are treated very, very differently. So we need to figure out um, why this second grader or third grader is way, way lower than his or her peers. So those assessments, um, yeah, so that's my synopsis of those. Are there, are there a variety of assessments that do that? Is there one specific, is like, um, I'm thinking about dibbles. Mm. Um, you know, is there, is, is there a specific assessment? What would you recommend if, if you make recommendations, I'm not sure yeah. with, with those specific things? Um, yeah, there are various. So, so originally those researchers who invented these assessments, um, that whole suite of assessments called CBM assessments, um, originally 40 some years ago, they were um, guidelines for doing these assessments and teachers were told, just go find some passages or make up lists of words um, and do it yourself. Then um, education, like all other aspects, there's entrepreneurial people who said, hey, um, I, could, I could create those passages and those word lists and things um, and sell them to people. So that's what people have done. Dibbles is probably the most widely known, one of the first commercially available CBM assessments, uh, but there are others, Acadians, Easy CBM, Ames Web, uh, the FAST, I'm, I don't like the name of that, the, uh, there's a group, but it's, those are wonderful assessments. And they all have various now, a lot of them are administered um, or scored um, on a computer or even administered on a computer. So they're all, you know, these are progressing and getting fancier, but they all are based on that same research base of curriculum-based measurement. So yeah, strengths and weaknesses and uh, different bells and whistles, but they're basically all doing the same thing. Well, I, mean, I, I know Dibbles because at least in my personal advocacy for my child, I fought for Dibbles. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't want just a random stopwatch and, you know, right. a, a, a minute timer and, you know, how many words did you get wrong and how many did you read in a minute? I was like, right. I want you to use 
dibbles. If you're going to write a goal for this specific aspect, I want a mathematically quantifiable right. measurement, and therefore I want dibbles. I never won that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I would just say, because people are, are listening from different places, um, right. I know New York City uses a cadence. Um, and uh, there are- Isn't a cadence you know, a split off from Dibbles? Yes, they, it was. Okay. Uh-huh. There was, there was a split uh, off from, uh, originally from the work done at the University of Oregon, uh, which the original developers of Dibbles were there and invented and created Dibbles from that research. And then um, <clears throat> they moved off and uh, rebranded themselves as Acadience, but it, it's an original Dibbles product. But the name Dibbles and a slightly different assessment is still being offered at the University of Oregon. So there's Dibbles 8th edition, Okay. Um, and there's a cadence, which is, um, yeah, a, a, a shoot off of the original Dibbles. Okay. Um, yeah, when you said a cadence, I was like, isn't there a thing? <laughs> I remember somebody bringing that up at one point. But uh -huh. um, this has been extremely informative. I'm so glad when I reached out to you that you said you wanted to talk about fluency. And because I was instantly like, yes, we need to be having this conversation again, because it's just so poorly understood. And I'm thrilled that you were able to join us today and talk specifically about this really critical topic. Yeah. Your books, um, Conquering Dyslexia, and I'm sorry, it's Fluency and Assessment. Reading, let's see, what is the title? I have a copy here, Reading Fluency. Reading understanding, fluency. assessing, teaching. Yeah, that's... And there's two parts to that, right? There are two versions of the book. The way that the publisher set this up is that there's a big book, mm -hmm. uh, the complete version, and then they created um, a little, a smaller, kind of a Cliff Notes version. I think um, that's the version I ended up with. Yeah. And, and the cliff, so there are different sizes. <laughs> there are certainly <laughs> different thicknesses. Um, the Cliff Notes version is very good. The editor that, that did that condensing did a really good job. She pulled really the important things. But if you're a practitioner or you're in professional development or you want uh, a deeper version of it, it would be the bigger book. And it's really hard. The publisher and I've had this conversation. It's hard to tell the difference, um, but the bigger book is slight, slightly more expensive. That's really the only way to tell the difference right now. But okay. yeah, that has two versions of it. And of course, I have your book, Conquering Dyslexia, and I've read that one. And I participated in that book study. Gosh, was that two months ago? Three months ago, something. <laughs> yeah, two or three. Uh-huh. And I really recommend that to parents as well. If you haven't had a chance to pick up Conquering Dyslexia, it's a very informative book and will definitely help you on your journey. So again, thank you so much for joining us. This is, and, and I'm thrilled I get to start off my new season with you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, <laughs> Thanks for responding welcome. to a message over Twitter. <laughs> Good old Twitter. I know, yeah. right? Yeah. So if any of the parents watching this or practitioners watching this, um, yeah, my Twitter feed is all about reading. I don't, I don't, uh, 
do anything with celebrities or politics. It's all about reading. And I have connected with wonderful people like you, Ashley, through Twitter. So it's at Jan Hasbrook. You can see my name on the screen there. The spelling of my last name is so challenging, but uh, you can find me on Twitter and I would love to connect with you there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I hope that you have a wonderful day and enjoy a your last beautiful weekend in Seattle before the yeah, rain sits in. Yeah, get outside <laughs> right away. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Ashley.